Amen. Please be seated. And as I have said, the first Sunday of 2016, 2017, now 2018, turn to Isaiah. Chapter 63, though, we are coming to the end of this magnificent prophecy, this wonderful book of the Old Testament, of the Scripture itself, but certainly one of the centerpieces of uh, the Old Testament. We're at the end of this book, or towards the end of this book. Uh, Remember, the book is 66 chapters. It captures the teaching of the prophet Isaiah over a 40-plus year ministry. It basically follows a chronology of his messages. We can assume um, that it is capturing the big picture of all that he's taught. The Holy Spirit inspires uh, the prophet to put together this book uh, based on his ministry over 40-plus years to the people of God. He witnessed a lot of things. He, uh, at the beginning of his ministry, there were still two kingdoms, the north and the south. The north essentially obliterated. Uh, the lost tribes of Israel go into Assyria, Assyrian exile, never to be identified uh, again. Uh, so the, the majority of his ministry, he's preaching to Judah, the southern kingdom. Judah, the tribe from which Messiah would come, that's a big part of the reason for um, God preserving uh, this nation. They didn't deserve to be preserved. God was disciplining them under the hand then of the Babylonians who were rising. Um, and so they're facing this Babylonian exile, and by this time, there are many prayers we'll read Isaiah pray on behalf of the people throughout Isaiah. Uh, but this, this prayer has evolved over time to where there's just a small group of the remnant left who believe in God's Redeemer, Messiah to come, but they're crying out to God for relief. They're in terrible trouble as Babylon looms and they're about to lose their national identity. So Isaiah, on behalf of the people, cries out. It's a beautiful way to start the new year for us, a prayer. It's not the model prayer. Uh, We pray the Lord's Prayer every week, and that captures the components of biblical prayer. But we shouldn't be surprised that this prayer has those components. Um, Looking ahead to God's fulfillment, we look back at the fulfillment in Christ. But it really does give us a a picture of the way we ought to pray, Um, what we pray for, what we pray concerning. In that light, I will begin reading. We'll take this in two parts this week and next week. The prayer extends from the middle of chapter 63 at verse 15, where I'll start. It's there on your your outline, your insert. And it goes all the way through chapter 64. But today we'll stop at verse 4 of chapter 64 as we see this prayer for God's visitation to be upon God's people. Hear now the word of the Lord, starting at verse 15 of chapter 63. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name, O Lord. Why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, 
as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, like your people of old, we are aware of our sin and our failure. We are further aware of our need for your salvation through Christ. And it is through Jesus that we come to you. We see this passage through the lens of Christ. As a new year dawns, please kindle a passion in us for you. Give us a desire for your kingdom to come, for your presence, for your victory above all things. Give us faith to truly rest in you for our everything. Give us honesty at the same time about our estate so that we can trust you all the more. Lord, make this text to resonate with our spirits as we seek your help and visitation this day and for all the days to come. We pray this in Christ. Amen. By this time in the book of Isaiah, the Lord, through the prophet, has already revealed quite a bit about the redemption that he will bring one day. Um, Redemption for the people of God was usually quantified by physical deliverance, but the redemption God promises in Isaiah is far greater than that. Now, that was still a bit confusing for some because they didn't see physical redemption coming with Babylon looming, and so they struggle with this, even some of the faithful. So God continues to remind them that there will be a coming of Messiah, and there will ultimately be a final coming of Messiah in the first part of chapter 63, which will bring his judgment in. So there's a promise of his coming and a promise of his redemption. Yet, the people suffered because of their sin, because of their wandering, because of the oppression of the nations. And so Isaiah, representing the people like he does so often, cries out to God. Now, this connects to us regularly with our prayers. Not that every prayer we pray is as profound, but personally, it's very meaningful. And when I cry out to God, I am asking him for his visitation. And that's what we should recognize. We sometimes will pray for things, you know, like, Lord, please just make this go well for me today, or have a good day, or take this burden from me. And we pray on superficial levels. They're important to us because they're right there, and we want God to, to fix this or that issue. But really, what we are doing when we go to God, and we can go to God through Christ as his people, we're going to him, asking him to visit our situation. God doesn't just stay aloft and other. He comes into our life. He's in your life. Uh, He's not interested in just these superficial things. It's the whole of it. So when we pray, when we cry out to God, what we're actually doing, make no mistake, is we're asking God to visit our situation, to bring his light to our situation, to bring his fire to our situation, that it might purge everything that should be purged. Um, Even our smallest prayers are ultimately asking for God to visit us. Calling to God for rescue, to visit our situation, requires something, and it's evidenced in this passage. We come to the end of Isaiah now, and the prophet prays with more maturity than prayed earlier. And you'll see that as he represents the people. And he prays now with a belief in God's power. 
um, there might, been a, might have been some doubt early on among the people anyways. Now they believe in God's power. They've seen him do enough. And they're also very honest about their estate apart from God. With belief and honesty, they cry out to God asking for him to visit their situation. And I submit that's what we do when we bring our prayers to God. Individually and then also as a church when we pray corporately for God to visit. So much here for us to see. First, notice how this crying out to God is actually asking him to visit. I want you to see that evidenced in the passage. It's a profound thing when you go to God in prayer. Verse 15, look down from heaven and see. So there's this calling to God who they're acknowledging as other. Now, this is, uh, you, this is using human language to describe God. He's not human like us or has a, doesn't have a body like us. But the sense is that he is other. He's apart from us. Look down from heaven and see. So this cry is for him to, to recognize, to visit. From your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Again, using this human language to describe God. He doesn't have inner parts, but this is the passion of God. He's calling God to bring that fire, bring that passion to their situation, to our situation. It's a cry to God for rescue. It's a cry to God to visit. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. It's true. God is other, absolutely other than us. But he's also near to us. He's near to us ultimately in the person of Christ. But this is true of God our Father. That yes, it's true that he is high and lifted up, but he's also near to us. He transcends that otherness to meet us. In this prayer is calling to God because their sense is, their experience is that he's, a far, he's far away. But they're calling on him from his place of otherness to come near So it's a cry to God to come and visit. Verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? And we'll look at this more closely in a moment. But notice what comes next in verse 17. Return. As though he's gone away, at least in their sense of things. Not in the reality of things, but that's what they feel like. Return. For the sake of your servants. Come visit. Come. Come to my situation. Return for the sake of your servants. The tribes of your heritage. Come visit. We are wandering. We are lost. We are suffering. Come to us. We need you to visit our situation. Since you're not with us. At least in their experience. In what they're seeing externally. Since you're not with us. Your name is being trampled. And we are in terrible shape. Look at verse 18. Your holy people held possession for a little while. And you know, it's just a little while when you look at redemption history. Just a little time that the people of God were unified and occupied the land. Your holy people, again verse 18, held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. Uh, the, The history of that violation. Verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. We look just like the rest of the wandering nations. Like those who are not called by your name. We're not bearing your namesake. By stating how it seems to be, it's a call to come and change it. That's what this appeal is about. 
In verse 1 of chapter 64, a profound verse, we'll look at a couple different ways. But for now, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, come visit. Oh, longing for with expectation that you will visit our situation. That, my brothers and sisters, is what we pray or should pray like. God, visit our situation. Come to our situation. We know you're holy and other, but you have made us your people, so come to us. Often God puts us in positions of desperation, so we pray this prayer, so that we recognize where our sustenance comes from. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Our situation would be different, O Lord, if you would help. If you are here, then things cannot remain the way they are. This estate that we're in would never be so if you were here. That's the sentiment. That's the sense that the people have in their situation. And they cry out in honesty to God. I once sat in the midst of a family who had just lost their father and their husband. Uh, When the father was alive, there was a peace and a unity about the family. Looking, Looking at that family, you would think that is a stable a family unit, as you could find several children. The marriage was solid. He was honest. It wasn't like it was perfect or anything like that. But he died uh, abruptly. It was not foreseen through an accident. And after his death, over the course of the year, fighting just broke out between the older siblings. There was rebellion against the mother. Things went from harmony and joy to division and rancor in their midst. It was a total turnaround. I remember once after a lengthy uh, family meeting. It was a terrible argument. I was trying to referee it at some level with everyone talking past one another. And an older sibling said very profoundly, in a quiet moment, if dad were still here, this would not be happening. It's that kind of sense that Isaiah says, God, if you would visit, this situation would not be like this. And he cries out, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Crying out to God is asking him to come visit the situation. Know that when you get into prayer. It's not just for you to cure your little problem right away. God wants more. He wants to come to the whole of your situation. Now, he is there, brothers and sisters. We just don't recognize it. And sometimes we evidence our lack of recognition by the way we pray. But now, praying going forward, know what you're really praying for is not just that this meeting goes well tomorrow or that doctor's appointment goes well. or It's for God to visit the situation and it's going to reveal a lot more than just what you prayed for most likely. Beware of what you're asking for. And I think Isaiah represents maturity on the part of the people of God who say something maybe different than what had been said in the earlier chapters. Look at this verse 1 again. What's the result of him coming down? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. There's a recognition that when God visits, mountains quake. And there's examples of that in the Old Testament. Most pronounced, of course, is when God visits Moses on Sinai. But there are other mountainous uh, earthquake experiences in the Bible. When God visits with his presence, things get shaken up. And everybody feels the shaking. Verse 2, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil. You see, God's presence brings fire, and that's symbolic of its purging nature. And it's so hot that nothing can escape. Just like in the forest fire, you can have a small little pond, a little, a little stream even, and if it's, there's a 
raging fire, that water can get heated to boiling. And when God's presence comes, that's what happens. That's, that's what he does. He exposes those impurities in our lives. God's presence always leads to a confrontation of sin and evil. It's not just around us, it's even in our own beings. We recognize God's purging presence in our lives. And when we pray for things, we're asking him for, for him to come visit. Here we are with this righteous remnant. Now by the time we've come to chapter 63, just really a narrow group of people at this point as they head into uh, exile in Babylon. In this group of verses that talk about what happens when God comes. The fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait on him, those who trust in him. They're all idols that they set up, and they don't respond to anything. But you, God, people have seen you come and you do things. You act on behalf of your people. And this cry is a crying out, asking for God to visit the situation. I thought to myself, if this is true of prayer, this is true of our access to God, what we as believers ought to do is go to God, why do, don't we do it? enough. Why don't I pray enough? And sometimes you'll get the old answer, well, you guys are reformed and you think God ordained everything so you don't have to pray as much. I think that's ridiculous. No reformed person who understands the reformation doctrine of God's sovereignty and his sovereign grace doesn't pray because of that. In fact, if you understand the sovereignty of God and his grace, you will pray more. If you don't pray because of that, then you don't understand the Bible's teaching on God's sovereignty. It's because he's sovereign that we can go to him for things. So I don't think that's it. I think it might be something else. I won't speak for you because I'm not saying this is your reality. But I know for me sometimes it's because I know when I pray for things that I am asking God to come examine those things. And sometimes what I'm praying for, I just want this thing I want, but I don't want to give up this or that. Whether it be freedom or something I'm doing, God bless me here. Meanwhile, I've got this pocket over here so I just don't talk to God because I don't want to, be, want to be exposed. It's sort of like every year I'm supposed to go to my annual physical, and I try to do so. But I don't like going for a simple reason. I know what the guy's going to tell me, and then i got to pay for it. I know what i got to do. I know what he's going to do. I could absolutely switch seats with him and tell him what he's about to tell me. And so I, I just I kind of put it off, because I know it's good for me. I should do it, but it exposes me. It it. it Put something out there that's obvious about my lack of discipline or my lack of care, whatever it may be. And I don't like that exposure. I think sometimes, even as mature believers, we hesitate to pray because it's inviting God to shed light on our life and show some things that need to be changed. Well, something else comes out in this passage that I hope will help you over that barrier. And it has to do with the basis for our being able to come to God. We are not coming to a God out there. We are coming to our Father. Our Father who art in heaven. But he is our Father. On that basis, we can come to him for him to visit our situation. And he comes with a fatherly, redemptive coming. Look with me as you can see this 
unpacked in verse 15, the second part. There's an underlying belief in God, his power and his willingness to intercede because he's our father. Where are your zeal and your might? Okay, so there's an admission that he has zealous might. He is a passionate concern and power. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. So verse 15, there's an appeal, there's a belief that God has the power. Then verse 16 bases it in something. For you are our father. Uh, and fathers want to exact their zealous power to protect and to uphold their children. So it's on that basis I cry out to you, God, knowing you're powerful and that you're willing. Why? Because you're my father. This promotes this drive to pray, to appeal to God by Isaiah, leading the people of God. You notice in the Old Testament, the fatherhood of God or our adoption as children of God, it's not accented heavily, but it is there. It's really accented when the Holy Spirit's sent and we are given the spirit of adoption and we can cry out, Abba, Father. But that's always been true in God's history of redemption, that we would know he is our Father now. That's different from the other nations for other people. Verse 16, for you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us, so those outward covenantal expressions of who the people of God are, those may be gone. They're losing it in exile. They're losing their identity as Babylon gobbles them up, as Babylon prepares to trample the temple, take away all their outward identities that identify them with Abraham or identify them with the nation of Israel. But what does it say? Verse 16, but you, O Lord, are our fathers. Twice it's said. It's on the basis of your being our father that I appeal to you, God. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Our Father and our Redeemer. Those two things say it all. We are his children and he has secured our standing by redeeming us from our sin. There's security in the prayer that's prayed by a person who's a believer. I hope that encourages you to not hold back from asking God to visit your situation. I don't want God to visit it completely because then it's going to expose. He's your father and he'll visit you with a fatherly love that's proven by the redemption he bought you in his son. That compels a believer to pray. It changes our thoughts about why we may pause. When you doubt God's love for you at a given moment, contemplate what he has done for you. Your father has redeemed you. He has made you and I sons and daughters through Christ. How was this done through Christ? By his substituting for us on the cross. Jesus represents us. And we are redeemed by his payment on that cross. And God's acceptance of that payment by raising him again. Verse 16. You are our father You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer, from of old is your name. Belief in God's sovereign power and his willingness based on his fatherhood to intercede compels us to pray for his visitation. One commentator I read thinks that the most important word in the whole passage before us happens in verse 1 of chapter 64, and it's the very first word which is a funny word in Hebrew, but translates in English. 
Oh, why is it such a powerful word? It's a, it's a word of belief. It's a word of expectation. It's a word that believes that if God was doing this, if God decides this, if God goes this way, if God visits, everything's going to be different. It's belief that God makes the difference. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. A thoroughgoing belief that if God, you would answer this prayer, it would happen just exactly the way you would will it to happen. Nothing would stop it. It's the essence of the whole section. Belief in God's sovereign power and his willingness to intercede because he is father to us. He is father to us because he's redeemer to us through Christ, ultimately. And you know what? There is no hesitation about what God's visitation means. There's confidence or belief in his power. And what is so clearly evidenced here is the kind of prayer that will come regarding God's visitation wants something as a priority that we often forget as a priority, and I'll challenge you to think about. Verse 2, chapter 64. When fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. So notice, before he's asking for deliverance, before he's asking for rescue, before he's asking for help, he's saying, come so that ultimately when your fire is shown, that your enemies will know who you are. In verse 2 again, and the nations might tremble at your presence. See, when we pray in that order, then we have our prayers aligned correctly. So if the first prayers are, Lord, visit our situation so that you are glorified. Hallelujah, yours is the glory. That's what our basic prayer is for. It comes from a desire for God's name to be known among. Not that we be saved from something initially. That comes after. See, maybe that deliverance isn't for his glory, and we would pray differently, right? We don't know exactly always what God's, but we pray for his glory. We pray that his name would be known to his adversaries. We don't want anyone to look at his people and think less of him. So Lord, visit us so that your adversaries could see you are the true and living God. And when we align our prayer that way first, and that should sound interesting or should sound very familiar to us. Our Father who are in heaven, holy is your name. Let your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in heaven. Let it so also be on earth. See, the model prayer roots us in God's glory. I think another reason why I don't pray as much is I get so busy praying for myself all the time, I even get tired of hearing myself ask for the stuff. If I would pray for God's glory more, if I would pray for his name to be known among his adversaries, if I would pray for the magnification of his holiness to be known around That shapes whatever I pray for next, doesn't it? Because some of the stuff I pray for isn't really with his glory in mind, and that's the problem. You'll pray more if you pray for God's glory. If you pray for God's name to be manifested, you will pray more as his children who have been redeemed by the Father who we call to visit our situation. And that's what we have evidenced in this prayer before us. And we need constant reminders of God's past faithfulness. I love how in this prayer we see once again a a recollection of how God has been faithful. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Uh, God just intrudes or he intercedes in a situation. Even when they weren't asking for it, he comes in and delivers. 
From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor I has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Israel has this unique history of God's intercession that the nations could not deny. And that recollection of God's past faithfulness is the thing that builds your faith and your trust in God, your Father, that drives you to pray for him. And is, it sounds so trite to say this. A pastor will always kind of say this to you, but it's true. You have to be reminded on a regular basis. I have to be reminded on a regular basis of God's past faithfulness. The number one record for this is his word. You cannot grow in your appeal to God in prayer or your faith in him without his word. His word is the inspired, God-ordained way for us to have sure record of what he has done, and we've got to consistently be, consistently be exposed to it. Uh, personally and corporately, we've got to come together for this purpose. And also, when we come together for this purpose, you're surrounded by other people who are different places in their life, and they can worship God like you and I can based on what he has done, but they can also share with each other, we can share with each other, the ways in which God has sustained us in that week or that month or that year in our life. And there will always be someone else who needs to hear or needs to be reminded of God's past faithfulness in your life. Because in that moment, they're not feeling that. And that's legit. That's a legit feeling they have. Their experience might be very dire, but they're there listening to the word. And they're there hearing the communication uh, with communication to other saints, with other saints, so they can hear how God's been faithful. And corporately, we can be encouraged and our belief deepen, and we appeal to God all the more. Finally, I want you to see something in the passage revealed that um, underlies it all. You could say the passage kind of is it's laden with this honesty, and that has to be true of any, time, any appeal we make to God. We have to know and profess and confess our shortcoming before God, the reality of this shortcoming. In fact, you will see by this passage that even that confession uh, in the way we pray, the confession of sin in the way that we appeal to God, is in itself a grace from God. Verse 16, we see these, this cry to God with honesty about our own sin. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us. Israel does not acknowledge us. There's an acknowledgement that they have, they have a sense of being orphaned. And they're not saying it's God's fault. There's a recognition. For you, O Lord, our father, our redeemer. The word redeemer, to use the word redeemer, isn't in itself an acknowledgement they need redemption. There's an underlying understanding that they are sinners and they cannot do this on their own. They must have God come and visit because God is the only one with power enough to do this because we have been terribly compromised, rendered spiritually bankrupt and dead because of our sin, so we have to have you come. So even the way the prayer starts by calling God Father and Redeemer acknowledges an honesty about their own sin. Verse 17. An intriguing passage at first glance. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways? It sure sounds like they're saying that God's causing them to sin. And harden our heart so that we fear you not. Now at first glance we might think that. And there's no question. Taking a step back from the text for a moment. God is absolutely sovereign. There's no argument against that. And his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And he is the one who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. But in the context, reading in the book of Isaiah, the development of what we've seen to this point, the people are at a place 
where they're under God's judicial hand, his discipline. And so the hardening of the heart here is referring to something that is first introduced in the book of Genesis. There's an understanding behind it. Remember in the book of Genesis where it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God? But then we read elsewhere, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which is it? Well, on the human level of explaining the story, there's this outward reality that Pharaoh walked against God. But there's also this reality that God brought hardness by judicial announcement to Pharaoh. What does that mean in this situation? God will give someone over to the sin they commit to by hardening their heart. And the only way their heart could ever be softened is by God's grace. So if it's a person who's not one of God's elect, who will not come to faith, that person will actually get confident in their sin. And they'll be stiff-necked against God until hell. But for those who are really his children, there might be a, a period of time that you go through this hardening because you refuse to walk away from the sin you're, you're entangled in. You keep going deeper in it. And God gives hardness to your heart to bring you low, and then he softens it to bring you repentance. And it's all part of what he's doing in your life to make you depend more and more upon him. For Israel, he pronounces a hardness upon them because of their rebellion against him. And so, by using this phrase, hardness of heart, Isaiah knows what he's saying. Why do you continue to keep our hearts hard? They've gotten to this place, now they can't respond because they're hard of heart. Moyer, one of my favorite commentators on Isaiah, says, the human act of disobedience results in a hardening of the character, a diminishing of the power to respond positively. If you keep on sin, keep sinning, keep sinning, keep sinning, until the sovereign management and decree of God that power is lost totally. You're too in deep, you can't get out at all now. That's the state of the heart of Israel as a nation. Moyer continues, The heart set on disobedience hardens progressively against the way and the will of God until the moment known only to the Lord arrives when the sentence of hardening must be passed. This is the point of no return. Since heart hardening is humanly irretrievable, only a turning on the part of God can help. I think of it this way. There's different stages to frostbite. There's the first stage where the, the epidermis is affected and it can hurt a bit, but it'll heal. There's the next level where it's a, a more severe frostbite where it goes from the epidermis into the dermis and you could lose some skin off of that. Blistering occurs. It's bad. But when it goes from the epidermis to the dermis to the deep tissue or to the tissue underneath it all and it goes all the way through, it's beyond the point of return and you're going to lose the skin above that. There's a hardening that happens. When you commit to a sin... Even as a believer now, when you commit to a sin, I'm going to keep lusting in this way. I'm going to keep going after this material stuff. I'm going to keep striving after this power. I'm going to keep doing this or this substance that I'm um, hooked on. I'm going to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And you get number and number and number to it until your heart's hardened. Now here's the beauty for a believer, one who's really God's child. And don't test this. But this is the beauty of this. The beauty is when you are able to say, God, please soften my heart, guess what? He's already softened your heart. Because you could not ever in your hardness ask God for anything. The beauty of this prayer is Isaiah is praying something that God was already giving. The fact that he would pray on behalf of the people, God, why are you making our hearts hard, tells us that the Spirit of God has worked to bring conviction. So if you're feeling guilty of your sin right now, you feel ashamed of your sin, God's working. You would not care if your heart is, is really hard. 
You think, well, I'm in a sin right now, Pastor, and I can't get out of it. Okay, you're bothered by that. You have softness in your heart. Answer God's call. Respond to God's grace. God will help you with that thing, that issue, that activity, whatever it may be. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? God must work before we can ask him to work. You were crying out to him when you were committed to the sin. You weren't looking for God's help when you were going your own way. You only cry to God when he moves you to cry to God. And that's what Isaiah prays for. Hardness of heart leads the non-elect, the person who will not come to faith. Only God knows that, by the way. But hardness of heart for that person will lead them to feel an increasing confidence and smugness about their actions. And that will lead them to destruction, ultimately. But hardness of heart in the redeemed, in the children of God, makes us feel weak and needy, and it's God's way of bringing us back to himself. Ray Ortland uh, comments on this passage, and he thinks that Isaiah 64, verse 1, is a beautiful description of what revival actually is. We all want revival in our lives and in the life of the church, church in general. Look at what it says, and I think he's right. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's what a revival is, when God visits. Revival is not when you conjure up a feeling. Revival is when God visits, and guess what? When he visits, you'll know. You'll know because you'll have a softness in your heart about sin you'll be compelled to cry out to God for him to visit the situation. You'll know there's sin in your life, but you want him to visit because you know he'll purge it with his presence. Oh Lord, rend the heavens and come down. That's revival when God comes down. Ortland says Isaiah is teaching us how to pray. And we learn to pray by reading the Bible. God wants us to pray with boldness and passion for the growth of his kingdom. Growth of his kingdom, that his name would be known among his adversaries. Isn't God's victory and reputation ultimately the aim of this prayer? Should that not also ultimately be the aim of our prayers? Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. As we start a new year together, brothers and sisters, and you have time together in prayer as families, as home fellowship groups, I think when we pray together and have those times of, uh, where we share prayer requests, I'm not saying at all we shouldn't keep praying for our parenting, keep praying for our health, keep praying for this, keep praying for that. Pray for that. But would it not look different if our first prayer request would be, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Amen. Because if that happens, all the rest will take its right place. Now, keep praying for those things. God wants you to. But let's start with the end in mind. Why should these things be visited by God? So that his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. So when we're passing around the prayer requests in our small groups, is his cause the first thing we mention? Are we praying with God's priorities? Do we understand that all of our happiness or joy will be in the victory of God? Um, are we longing for the descent of God upon us as a church? What could be greater for us, 
for our families and for our community than God visiting us. Let's pray. Dear God, please give us a passion for your victory, a passion for your kingdom to come, a passion for your glory on the earth, that it might drive us as we call for you to come visit us with your presence. Give us a longing for your visitation. Help us to pray earnestly for your help and for your presence. Lord, we want your glory to come upon this earth through your people. We pray for your glory to be unrestrained. And please start in each of our lives this day. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.